If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, I'm going to ask you to take it and go to Acts chapter 13 with me this morning. Acts chapter 13, as this is a very different service um, for our visitors. As I said, we have our missionary family, the Churchills. And while this is not their last scheduled Sunday with us, they will be with us again next Sunday. It is my last Sunday with you before my holidays, and I wanted to be a part of this with Tim and Christina uh, before they left. But in case you are looking up here, I just want to do something here. This is the first time I am 44 years old, so I am middle age. All right. I have crest the hill and started the walk down. Okay, but it is my first time in all my life being in church, being on this platform and looking out at people where I have worn jeans to church. Don't judge me. Okay. now. I had intended, but I, I, run, I burn hot. So if I'm like this, you might say, well, this looks disrespectful. Pastor Steve is in jeans. But if I do this, instantly respectful. Don't you say that, John. Instantly respectful. There you go. Now I look pastoral. And if this was a full pulpit, I'd even look it because you wouldn't even see the jeans. All right. So I just thought I'd have a bit of fun with you. I'm going back to my uh, last ministry this summer. I have to preach there on the 24th. Never once did I wear jeans at that church, and I am going to wear them when I go back with my cool blazer that my wife helped me pick out and uh, do that. So I just wanted to do that just because I can and just because to break the monotony of everything. But I want to have a time of commissioning, and if you are uh, curious to know, we have some things on this table. In each of these bags is something special for Katie and Sarah and Anna. It's a little uh, time capsule keepsake box. Uh, and we have engraved there that it's with love from your Calvary family and has your name on it and a passage of Scripture. And when you go on this new adventure, we'd love it if you just collect your memories, collect the things that happened to you. And that's a place that you can put those and just remember your church family here at Calvary that we will not forget you and that we will remember you in prayer. So those are for you. But there is a picture book and an address book down here as well, and it will be here for the next two weeks. And we're asking everybody from Calvary to come up and find a page and sign something. Write something personal to Tim and Christina. Sign it, whether it's a passage, something, a memory you guys shared, a funny story. And then put your address and stuff like that in the address book. And this is something they can take with them to South Africa. And uh, as they have people in their home, they can show people where they come from, the land of icebergs and ice, and where, yes, this past week it was colder here than Greenland. Um, we're proud of that, for those of you that are visiting. Um, we don't suntan here in St. John's. We rust, and we're proud of it, all right? So this is what we are doing today. This is a bit of a commissioning service for everybody, for the Churchills, but really, this is also a commissioning service for everybody. So today, here's what I've put, the sermon in a sentence, is really my title. God's church plus God's call plus God's way will always equal God's results. Always. Their mission statement was this. Our Lamb has conquered. Let us follow Him. That was the mission statement of the Moravian movement of several hundred years ago. Our Lamb has conquered. 
let us follow him. Is that our motto? John Leonard Dobner and David Nietzscheman. You may not even know these names. I don't know how much the world knows of them, but I believe at the end of Hebrews 11 that is right with these two men, the world was not worthy of them. John Leonard Dobner and David Nietzscheman are names you may not, as I said, readily recognize. John was a potter, virtually the lowest class of job you could have in his day. David, a little bit better, he was a carpenter. They were ordinary occupations, but by God's grace, they were extraordinary men. They are men who left the security of their jobs and families in Copenhagen to become the first Moravian missionaries in 1732. John Leonard Dobner and David Nietzsche are unsung heroes of missions for the Savior. They were willing to be sold as slaves in order to have the opportunity to reach the slaves of the West Indies for their Lord. And they literally went to work and John offered himself as a slave where they went to work on 10 plantations where 300 white slave owners had 3,000 slaves and they had met a couple of these slaves that somehow had made their way to Copenhagen and said, who will bring the gospel to our friends and family? And these two men answered the call and went. Our lamb is conquered. Let us follow him. These two men felt that their sacrifice for Christ paled in comparison to the sacrifice of their Savior. They loved Jesus with everything they were and did and desired to walk not only in word only but in obedience, knowing full well that God who called them is the God who gives the courage, grace, and anointing for the task. Even if it meant to spend a life of hard toil with meager provisions and hardship. Both John and David experienced more than a coffee cup or a wall mural or something or a bookmark. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things or I can bear all things through Christ who strengthens me. The story goes that when these two men boarded the boat that they had to actually get Dutch people to help them raise so they could literally raise the money because the slave traders would not even pay their way to the West Indies. They had to raise their own money to go bring themselves into this environment and they did. And as the boat was pulling away and their family and friends in this Moravian church and Dutch friends had gathered, they wept for their brothers in Christ and yet John or David, one of them we don't know well, yelled for from the boat as it was sailing away. May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. I don't know if Tim and Christina have felt that. I know that I have. I am sure they likely have. I pray that if you name the name of Christ, that before this day is over or tomorrow morning when you get up and you anticipate going to work, you will say, oh God, use me in such a way so that the lamb that was slain will receive the reward of his suffering and that he will save people through us, not because of us, but through us, but because of Jesus. That cry so seized the hearts of many of the Moravian brothers and sisters that hundreds Hundreds went over the next few years almost entirely without financial support beyond money to start the journey. They had to earn their own livings. 
And out of the 29 others that followed these two men to the West Indies, we're told that 17 of them died of fever and nine returned deathly sick to Europe. And more offered and more offered. And over time, God did wonderful things. And many of these slaves became free men and slaves to Christ. Moravians were also used in reaching North American Indians, the Inuit off the Eastern Arctic, East India, South Africa, Suriname, and other fields, including, I might add, the coast and shores of Labrador. Our Moravian missionaries. They were characterized by dedicated, sacrificial work, Christ-centeredness, and not too much of the cultural baggage that came with later waves of Protestant mission. But what I found more amazing as I studied to talk to Tim and Christina both, to talk to myself, to talk to this church, was not just about these two men, not just about these Moravians who authored the missions movement and paved the way for men and women, but famous men that we know like William Carey and Adoniram Judson and David Livingston and Hudson Taylor and Jim Elliott and all of these men. But there's another name that many of us may never have heard of. It was a name I had to work at in my Newfoundlandese to learn how to pronounce. Count Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf. He was born in May of 1700 and he died in May of 1760. This man was saved by God and then used by God in his church. There is so much about this man that I wish you would know. I'd encourage you to go home and Google his name or talk to Brother Steve or I afterwards. There are books about this man, and you want to know about him. But I, I read one thing I read. For more than 100 years, this very wealthy boy that was born into a noble, wealthy family turned his back on it all or used his wealth to start a community for the Moravians, and the name of the place meant the Lord Watches. But he started something on August 26th of 1727, the 100-year prayer meeting for 100 years, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, this group prayed for 100 years. After they started that in August 26th of 1727, it was five years later that John and David responded to the call of God. A Moravian brother-sister for 100 years somewhere engaged in prayer 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. And among the brethren, this meeting was known as the hourly intercession. There was literal prayer without ceasing for 100 years. And the prayer focus soon moved from those in Hernhut which means the Lord watches, to lost souls in Europe and around the world. The Lord gave the entire community a burning desire to see sinners come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And this fueled the young Zinzendorf's fire for evangelism. What kind of commitment and patience is that? Now, let's look at Acts 13, 1 to 12. And I would submit to you that this, that was fueled by this. And it's where we need to find our fuel. It's where Tim and Christina and their family need to find their fuel to answer the call to die to self. For me to live is Christ. 
but to die is gain. Acts chapter 1, I want you to hear the word of the Lord. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. (laughs) Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucas or Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a long, lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Now notice verse 2, while they, not just these men, but the church at Antioch, the church corporate, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said to these, this church, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So that's what happened. Now here's the result of what happened, starting in verse 4. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, I want you to notice how the church was involved in verses 1 to 3, but how the credit all goes to God. Verse 4, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of the Lord in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had John, that's John Mark, the writer of the, of the Gospel of Mark. They had John to assist them. And when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician or sorcerer, a Jewish false prophet named Barjesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas, Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of the Lord. So he demanded that they come to him and said, tell me what it is you're preaching and teaching. But Elimus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, you will not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord. Now that's how you win friends and influence people. You talk about boldness to call it what it was. Verse 11 And now, Paul continues, Behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. And immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. This was a guy who said he would lead people, is now in need of leading by people. In verse 12, one of my favorite verses in this chapter Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred. Now notice this, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word this morning. So in light of what we have heard about John and David, about the Moravians, about Count Nicholas, about Paul and Barnabas, and about all of those that were involved in the church of Antioch, let's fast forward now 21 centuries to 2016 in St. John's, Newfoundland at Calvary Baptist Church with Tim and Christina Churchill and their daughters. And I want to ask, how do we know that the Churchills are called? Are we just going along for the ride because we want to play nice and not offend them? Are we hoping they're called? 
Why are we doing what we are doing here today? Is this just to appease everybody? Is this just another ritual we're tagging on so we can act like church? I'll say what I said again last week. If church is nothing more than a hobby, it's one of the dumbest and most dangerous hobbies for you to have. Unless it's where God resides and there's something living and powerful here. Don't go to church just because it's a hobby. It will thoroughly disappoint. But if church is where the living God shows himself through his people, the church, then it's amazing. And we need to understand that. How does God call people into lifelong commitments to ministry? How, how do pastors get called? How do missionaries get called? How do ministry workers get called? How does God call folks to himself? How does God move in folks in the church that people in the church will give of their time or their finances? They will serve in ministries. They will surrender their time or their families or their loved ones. They will confess to God. They repent according to God's word. They seek God. They seek forgiveness from God and from each other. We reach the lost together we start ministries together how do we do that well we just read about it in acts chapter 13 verses 1 to 12 and i would submit to you that according to this passage if we indeed confirm god's call on the churchills and we go even further to send them before god and us their church family i would say may acts 13 1 to 12 be our guide and may matthew or hebrews 12 1 to 3 be our rally cry Hear the words of the writer of Hebrews in chapter 12, verse 1, when he says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, cloud that's made up of people like John and David and the Moravians, Count Nicholas, and countless others who have gone on before. Think, folks, do you realize there's a statue across next to our Confederation building of a guy that looks like a doctor holding a doctor's bag? Do you know what his name is? Tell me his name. Sir Wilfred Grenville, yes. Do you know that he was a convert of D.L. Moody, another wealthy man in Chicago who gave up his entire fortune to travel all down through the fishing ports of Labrador into the northern parts of Newfoundland. And to this day, we have schools and hospitals named after this man. And so few of us know that he died and lived for Jesus. So it's in the cloud of those witnesses. Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How do we do that? Looking to Jesus, the founder, the author, and protector of our faith. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And here's where you find the fuel to do it. Consider him, Jesus Christ, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Calvary Baptist Church, Tim and Christina and, and family, all of our friends and visitors, we are called to be missionaries for Jesus. Every one of us. We prayed as a music team in my office. The mission field starts just outside that door and reaches everywhere you go. So this is for Tim and Christina, but it is not only for Tim and Christina and their family. Now, as we get into this, I want to break this down very quickly into four points, and then we're going to call the Churchills forward. I want to give you a brief outline, though, of the book of Acts. I don't know if you've ever done this. If you've not read the book of Acts, let me encourage you to do it and try and read it all in a one or try and take it and just concentratedly read it. 
But here's how you would actually uh, outline the book, much like that famous verse in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when God says, but you shall be my witnesses. He says, after this, the Holy Ghost will come upon you and he will empower you and you will be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and Judea and under Samaria and under the uttermost parts of the earth. And so really, you can take the book of Acts and you can break it up out of that outline, out of that verse. Chapters 1 to 7 give us the foundation and the setup of the gospel and the church in Jerusalem. Everything in chapters 1 to 7 are all about Jerusalem. They're all about what God has doing and is doing in Jerusalem. In chapters 8 through 12, you learn about the Gentiles. And you learn about Christians and Jews and Gentiles as the Jews are spread from Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria. In chapter 13, where we are now, we're going to get from chapter 13 to 28, there's a complete focus change. Up until this point, chapters 1 to 4, focus on the 12 disciples, primarily on Peter. But in chapter 13, Paul or Saul comes onto the scene, and basically all you read about from chapter 13 to 28 is about him as the gospel now spreads to the uttermost parts of the earth. Now, if you want to know about chronology in, your, in, in the book of Acts, chapter 12 is like a commercial. It's like a parenthesis. Chapters 1 to 11 are kind of chronological. Here's what's happening. Here's what's happening. Here's what's happening. Chapter 12 gives you some color commentary. And chapter 13 actually picks up where chapter 11 stopped. So if you look in your Bible at the end of chapter 11, you'll notice in chapter 11, verse 30, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. This is what they were talking about. Then there's all this about James killed and Peter imprisoned in chapter 12. But you'll notice at the end of chapter 12, it says, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. So that's taking the end of 12 is from the end of 11. Then you get into chapter 13, verse 1. And so I want us to remember that. So here's the four things. How do we know that the Churchills are called? How do we know if you're called? How do we know that someone here isn't called to be a pastor or a missionary? How do we know that someone here isn't called to get involved in serving the Lord, to give something, to serve something, whatever? Well, here's the, pro- the protocol in Acts 13, 1 to 12. Number one, if you're going to know if people are called, if God's going to work in our church the way he did in the New Testament, number one, God's church worships God's church worships together it was Count Nicholas who said this there can be no Christianity without community now I want you to stare at that and ask yourself if you believe it there can be no Christianity without community there are no lone rangers with Jesus If someone says to me, I am a Christian, but I hate the church, I have to be honest, at some point when I get enough relationship, I will actually ask them, are you sure you're a Christian? Because if you cannot love the bride of Christ, how can you love the groom of Christ? Jesus Christ is the groom. The church is his bride. If you've been called to be regenerate, it means he has called you and saved you to place you in his church. And that's exactly what we see in Antioch. Look back at chapter 11, verses 19 to 24. Go back and notice. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen. So when Paul, who was called Saul at that time, sees Stephen stoned, they traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and notice Antioch. 
speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. These were the Greek Jews. The Hellenists were Jewish people by ethnicity, but they were living very much like Greeks. They had taken Greek names. They were living in Greek culture. And then it says, and the hand of the Lord was with them. Notice this. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. And the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. And notice who they send. They sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw, no, I love this. He came and saw the grace of God. He was glad. Now, talk about this. To find out if your church is in a competition or if your church is in it for the Lord, imagine if someone goes to another church and God's blessing that church and people are getting saved in that church and that church is outgrowing your church and that church seems to be doing way better than your church. But instead of trying to pick it apart and be jealous and competitive, true Christians say, I can't believe how the grace of God is being displayed here. This is what Barnabas does. He sees that the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the church. This church built in an Ephesians 4 way. Do you remember Ephesians 4? Where he gave some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry so that everybody would grow up into maturity in, in the fullness of Christ. They were worshiping God. They're praying to God. They're loving each other. They're loving others. And that's God's work. That's His call. And that's when God works. And that's how God calls. And that's how God makes known His will. When a church functions as the church. When the Word of God is the Word of God. When prayer is not something we talk about, but we do. When we gather in community, when we hold each other accountable, when we stir each other on to love and good deeds. This is what a church does. And when a church does it, God works. And folks, I got to tell you, this is as true of Calvary today as it is for Tim and Christina when they were called some years ago. This is true of any Christian. We need, no, we must be a people of God's word and prayer and community doing life together because then and only then will we experience the presence and power of God's Holy Spirit in our lives God is not God is not and cannot be done calling men and women in this city or in South Africa amen God can't be done. Tim and Christina cannot be the last people God's going to call to the country of South Africa. We cannot be all that is in this city to hear the gospel. So we need to be the church. Number two, how does God work? God calls in worship from His church. Notice they were together in community. They were worshiping and praying and God spoke and God called. But notice that way, what they do when the call comes in. Look at the end of verse 2 into verse 3. This is, I find this fascinating. So in verse 2, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Now you would think that maybe after that happened, they were like, whoa, the Holy Spirit just told us to do something. Let's just do it. But notice what it says. Then after fasting and praying again, then they laid their hands on them and sent them off. They don't just respond um, kind of from their gut. They fast and pray some more. 
They're in God's word. They're in community. They're in prayer. They're doing this together. The Holy Spirit speaks. And when the Holy Spirit speaks or someone, someone like this, I believe the Holy Spirit is said to separate Paul and Barnabas. And they told somebody else. I believe. And you know what? The Lord was telling me that too. And then somebody and they said, you know what? We need to pray about this. And we need to fast. And we need to make sure that this is from God and not just from our pizza. Because emotionalism and manipulationism is rampant in the church. And so we need to be in the Word of God, and we need to be in prayer, but we need to make sure that when someone says, I think the Lord is leading me here, I think the Lord is telling us to do that, then you know what? We need to fast and pray some more. And then you send them out. God, they take hearing from God, and they take it very seriously. And it's not just cursory prayer. They labored in it. It was part of their day-to-day life. And of course, if we're going to see this happen amongst us, worshiping, fasting and praying, God calling and God moving, we might expect that the whole world is open to us then, wouldn't you think? I do not believe that the only family that God has called out of this church to be missionaries are the Churchills. Surely to goodness, God is going to call other people to missions. God's got other pastors in this room. God's got other ministry workers and people who will sacrifice in this room. Are we going to be a people that would say, Holy Spirit of the living God, speak to us through your word, through prayer, and confirm it in your church? After all, it was Jesus who said in Matthew chapter 16, remember in verse 17, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. If we will serve God, God's will will be done. Now, I just want to make sure, though, we don't, because we often hear is where we get into faulty spiritual math. This is when we get into some faulty spiritual math. We read stuff like this and we go, okay, so God is for us and nothing or no one can be against us. So that must mean we'll have a great life, lots of love, little opposition, no trials, no setbacks, no betrayals, no sickness, or even death. We're just going to live forever. Yeah, so here's what I have to say about all that. Because that's nicer than if I said what Piper said, which was crap. I mean, some people will say, well, what, Pastor Steve, what about Romans 8? We read that last week. We are more than conquerors in either life nor death nor principalities nor darkness nor angels nor spears and all the... Yeah, but listen, let's read verse 4 and onward. Look at what happens. So verse 4, being sent by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia and from there they were called to Cyprus. And when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of the God in the synagogues and they had John to assist them. And when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain musician, magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bargina. Jesus and he was with the pro-council. He was a man of intelligence and he summoned Barnabas and Saul and he sought to hear the word of the Lord because he loved them so much and he wanted to know exactly what they knew and he wanted to uh, take it in and then he wanted to join them and the whole world was an oyster and they lived a Skittles life and everything was great. Oh, wait a second. Did I misread that? No, what I read is he opposed them. God calls them And they go, and the first thing they face is opposition. Folks, here's why we need to be so desperate in our commissioning of the Churchills. Don't you be naive. 
Don't we be naive to think that that family will not put a foot on the soil of South Africa and then live a Skittles life. Opposition awaits them. Setback awaits them. We may experience before they even get there. If all the FBI stuff and documentation doesn't come through, they'll spend all kinds of money going to Hungary, visiting with family, trying to get to Ottawa, only to go, oops, we didn't have it, come back to St. John's and wait. And then how do you tell your supporters that? Oh, we're serving Jesus. How? Waiting in St. John's? That sounds great on a missions letter. When so many people are that fickle. But that's the opposition that they're going to face. It's the opposition. Paul and Barnabas, as soon as they do this, that Paul and Barnabas get out and they set off and God is good and God's word is powerful, but they face immediate opposition. In fact, if you read the rest of Acts, John Mark gets so freaked out by this that he bails. If you start reading in verse 13 onward, he goes back home. And it causes a rift, a division in Paul and Barnabas, so much so that they divide ministries. And despite their incredible send-off, in spite of the Spirit-empowered proclamation, we must never forget that both of these men died for Jesus. Barnabas, history tells us, in 61 AD, died at the hands of um, Seleucids. Paul, later in the mid-60s, was martyred, and they were both martyred for their Savior. These Holy Spirit-called men faced opposition, physical, mental, emotional, financial, and most of all, spiritual. But I want to remind you, remember back in Acts chapter 9 when, when Paul is saved? You remember what he says to Ananias, the, the priest? He says, but the Lord said to him, go for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Now that sounds like a great commission. But then he finishes off with, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. You see, that doesn't play well. Imagine if I call the churchills up here and say, God bless you, we are commissioning you to go suffer well in the name of Jesus. But that's true. I remember when I left Grace Baptist Church to come to Calvary Baptist Church. From a human point of view, I was leaving a big church with a big lot of ministries and a multi-level staff and all these things. And I'd been there and it was comfortable and it was easy. And I announced that I was coming here. Do you know how many people from a church I preached to for 15 years said, Oh, listen, since it's God's call, you're going to go down there and great things are going to be done. And you had to see their faces when I said, Well, what if God calls me there and I die? What if God calls me here and I preach my guts out for 15 years and nobody gets saved? Was God still good then? Was His grace still grace? Was His gospel still the gospel? There are, these aren't the promises. The promise is that we go serve Him. Read Isaiah. If you're reading the Ramamurian machine, you've read the beginning of Jeremiah. I love this. Jeremiah, since you were in the womb, I've known you. I've called you. I've formed you. I'm going to send you. And nobody's going to listen. Have a great life. That was his commission. Isaiah 6. Here am I, Lord, send me. And the angel comes and touches his lips. And, and it's, Lord, and, and thou art worthy and da-da-da. And then the second half of the chapter, which very few people read, is you're going to speak and preach and cry and stomp and spit and snot and nobody's going to listen. Be warm and be filled. This is often the call to ministry. The Churchills are going to face opposition in South Africa. Paul himself describes his life in 2 Corinthians 11 and 12, but he boldly and proudly proclaims later on in verse, chapter 12, he says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses 
so that the power of Christ may rest upon me for the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is what I'd like to put on a plaque and give to the Churchills. This is what we should hang in our kitchens and on our living rooms. This is what God's called us to. For when we're weak, then He is strong. Will God bless the Churchills in South Africa? You bet He will. Does that mean by living a seamlessly troubleless life? Hardly. They will walk through some of the darkest stuff that maybe even some of us don't even know about. But they'll be able to say, He gives and He takes away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. And so will you and I if we embrace our call. You see, following Jesus... Being a godly church, obeying God's word doesn't mean you and I are going to have a good and easy life. Please don't buy the junk, the poison that is the prosperity gospel. But when you follow Jesus, we have an eternal right relationship with God. We will live for something stronger, deeper, and more precious and satisfying and lasting. Church, you get Jesus when you have him. Paul talks about it in 2 Timothy 4. He says, I am ready to be made a drink offering. I've fought the fight. I've finished my my race. I've kept it. Hence, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord will give me in that day. And that's what our Moravian brothers thought. That's what Count Nicholas thought. That's what Sir Wilfred Grenville thought. They gave away everything because they had everything. They had Jesus. But we almost realize as we face opposition, God is with us. God will be with the Churchills. Even if we are faithless, God will be faithful. The word, God's word is powerful and sharp. His word doesn't return void. And when God decides to move, nothing and no one can stand in the way. But notice how our passage ends in verse 9. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil. One of these ways, I've got to find a way to preach that. You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon him, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. And then the proconsul believed. When he saw what had occurred, he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. You see, in the midst of opposition... Paul and Barnabas in the church is equipped with worship and prayer and fasting, supported by the church, filled with the Spirit. And Paul does not only what a man, Paul does what only a man powered by the gospel can, display God. That's what Tim and Christina need. That's what this church needs. Does that not sound a lot like Ephesians 6? That we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and darkness and evil in high places, therefore put on the whole armor of God? And then he lists out the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, and gird your loins out with righteousness, and have your feet shod with the preparations of the gospel, and all these types of things. See, I want you to see how often when you read Paul's letters, they were inspired by what God actually used through the man Paul as he's writing, and you read about it in the book of Acts. It's why you and I need to read Acts to help us understand the epistles. It's why we need to read the Old Testament to get more out of the New. It's what Derek was telling me this last week and Tuesday when we had our men's Bible study. Derek was saying as he was reading through Isaiah and Jeremiah, how often he's reading it and these passages he's read in the New Testament. It's like, oh, that's where that passage came from. And his Bible comes to life. That's why you got to get into the Word of God. 
I love the last verse, though. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. <laughs> Tim is called to go to South Africa. And you know what his calling is? To go teach the Word of God to other men and women who can go forth and teach the Word of God. It's not this, is not this what we are also called to here at Calvary? Aren't we actually commissioning Tim and Christina to do what we want to be busy doing here at Calvary Baptist? For all of you that are visiting, isn't this what God has called you to do in your churches? See, how much do you love God's Word? I mean, really? I mean, after all, as I've said at the beginning, this is 2016 at Calvary Baptist. We've said this is the year of the Bible. I'm, I'm somewhat, I always say it somewhat a bit tongue-in-cheek because should we ever have to tell a church that this is the year of the Bible? Shouldn't it just be understood? From the beginning to the end of this sermon, from the beginning to end of this service, prayer, the Bible, and our response is the basis of all we are called to do. So for every man and woman in this church, in this room and downstairs, let me say this. I think the application here should stand out and be a bit obvious, isn't it? First one for everyone here, and I never want to take this for granted. Are you here this morning? Do you know Jesus? And I don't mean, do you just know about him? Because for our visitors, you need to know that many in this city would claim to know about Jesus. In fact, it's almost about 90% of the people that live in this city would say they know about Jesus. But the reality is, less than 1% of this city actually know Him as Savior. Many know about Him and what He has said, but very few know Him as Lord. And do you see what knowing Jesus looks like? You see, knowing Jesus is different from religion. It's different from religion. It's different from knowing about Him. It's especially different from using Him for what you can get out of Him. It's different as well from being afraid of Him as if he's some Greek mythological God. It's different from even being curious about him. No, to know Jesus is to trust in him. It's to believe in him. So therefore, you believe his word. You go to him in prayer and you believe what he says to you. You believe about who he is and why he sent his son. It's to embrace what the Bible says about you and me and what our problem is and what his solution is. But as we finish up here today, as a church, can I ask Calvary Baptist Church something? Now, really, I want you to own this. Calvary Baptist Church, are we, as a group of people, a worshiping, missions-focused, God-listening, word-following, Holy Spirit-empowered church? At the very least... Is that who we want to be? Is that who we want to be? And let me encourage us here at Calvary. In many ways, we are like the Antioch church. The Antioch church was a much smaller church. It wasn't like the Jerusalem church. Remember Jerusalem? 3,000 were added and then five. They were a mega church, not Antioch. It was, it was those that had run scared from persecution. They had gathered together. They were just a wee little church, not very rich, but the Holy Spirit was there, and God decided to use that church because it was a church with a heart for others. And that is, Calvary, we can minister in a city and a province very much in need, but we also want to help, help others across Canada and around the world. And our vision for here in Newfoundland and St. John's is as broad as the Great Commission itself. 
and Hebrews 10. We want to be in the Word of God and the breaking of bread and in prayer and in fellowship. We want to hold each other accountable. We want to stir each other on to love and good deeds. We want to be like those in, in Revelation 4 and 5 where men and women from every kindred and tongue and nation and tribe gather together and say, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive honor and glory and power and blessing. I've used this quote before. Christianity started out in Palestine as a fellowship. It moved to Greece and, be- Greece and became a philosophy. It moved to Italy and became an institution. It moved to Europe and became a culture. It came to America and became an enterprise or a business. And that's true of Canada. But let me expand on that. You see, the church, even missions, started in Jerusalem. But in Jerusalem, they became narrow in their focus and God moved on. Then they went to Antioch for many years, but eventually God moved on from Antioch because they lost their burden as well. The Bible tells us it went to Ephesus next, and Exodus 19.20 tells us that all of Asia heard the gospel in tremendous power, but in Revelation 2, it reveals that they left their first love and God moved on. The church had to move on as well, hiding from persecution for many years. Next, it went to Constantinople. And under the leadership of Emperor Constantine, the gospel moved out of the catacombs and into the cathedral. This was the basis of operation for years. But then formalism crept in and Christianity became dry and dead and God moved on. Next was Rome. And it was good for a time. And then came the rise of Catholic dogma, which replaced Holy Scripture and ritual, replaced relationship and ceremony and sacraments, took the place of salvation. And then God moved on. Next was Germany. Germany had great revival. God had his hand on the nation and many missionaries went forth. But history says that skepticism crept in and rationalism and something called higher criticism and evangelism and missionary work became a thing of the past. And then God moved on. From there, England became the center of activity and mighty revivals for about a hundred years and they were the launching pad for world missions and great men like William Carey left England for places like England and Hudson Taylor for China and many others, but eventually the church died and spiritual lethargy spread like the plague and God moved on. And then it was America's turn. And for many years, the West has been the center of world outreach, a Christian nation or a Christian set of nations which has sent out tens of thousands of missionaries from its shores. But it doesn't it seem obvious that we must raise the question as we as Canada and America are falling spiritually, could it be that God is getting ready to move on? As the fires of evangelism go out in our countries and in our churches, because of worldliness and complacency and comfort, should we expect God to remain? Look at Canada and America today. We put on nice clothes, we leave our nice homes, we drive our nice cars, we come to to a nice building, we sit in nice chairs and pews, we have a nice atmosphere, we hear a nice sermon, we go afterwards and eat a nice meal, then we take a nice snap with no thought whatsoever to the fact that millions, yea, billions are still without hope and don't even know the name of Jesus. Listen, church, God is not obligated to continue to use us, Canada or America. Nor is he obligated to use Calvary Baptist Church unless we stay true to the scriptures, no matter who leaves, unless we remain firm in the mission that God has given us, unless we continue to sacrifice for the sake of the lost. Will Calvary Baptist Church be famous for the gospel? 
Will we be a people proud to invite others in to its power, not ashamed to witness boldly, no matter the cost, and faithful even when it is not convenient? Let me tell you about Count Nicholas's calling. He was a deeply spiritual man and traced his intense devotional life to one event on a single day when he visited an art gallery and saw a portrait of Christ wearing a crown of thorns on his head and at the bottom of the picture was written this, all this I did for you, what are you doing for me? And that was the fuel that fueled him for the rest of his life. It wasn't trying to earn God's favor. He worked his tail off because he already had God's favor. And he gave his life as a response to what God had already done. And so to Tim and Christina, God has called you to ministry. A ministry that right now is relatively unknown to both of you. And you're taking your family with you, or at least three-fourths of it, as John and Rebecca stay here at home. But I need you to know, as a husband and a wife and as a mom and dad, God may call you in all kinds of ways, even in South Africa, and is likely to call even your other girls away from you. And you'll need meet opposition, and you'll have and experience triumph. But I want you to know that God has called you, and He will be faithful. God has called you to put Him above all things and all people, and you are to be His witnesses. And I want to pledge to you both right now on behalf of the elders and the people of Calvary Baptist Church, and I want to tell this church that we are called to support and pray for and love, even holding accountable, yet we are called to make as much effort as possible to hold up the ministry hands of this family. William Carey once said this. This was brilliant. I'm going to use this even about ministry in Newfoundland. After hearing an account of the spiritual needs of India, the secretary of the meeting remarked, this is a gold mine in India, but it, but it seems almost as deep as the center of the earth. Who will venture to explore it? Carrie said, I will venture to go down, but remember that you must hold the ropes. Tim and Christina, go to the deep mine of South Africa, but we are called to hold the ropes. We are called to hold the ropes. When they hurt, we're to hurt. When they bleed, we do. When they cry, we should cry. When they rejoice, we rejoice. And I know, I know I've said it umpteen times, all right? Imagine, imagine a community of Christ followers obeying this passage of Scripture. What would it do for God's glory and for our testimony, for the Holy Spirit power of God to be on display on Tim and his family and on us and our families in a church at the, at the institute there? Now, regardless of the results, will God find us faithful?